This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering. Hello and welcome once again to the program. Last week we completed going through Lama Tsongkhapa's text the three principal aspects of the path. We'd spent a few months with that text, and if you tuned in regularly, I hope you got something beneficial out of our discussions. Today we'll be basing the program on another quite famous text in the Gelukpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, the Eight Verses of Mind Training by Langri Tampa. Our quest, then, is to examine our mind, see how it works, and to transform or eliminate whatever leads to suffering. As much as our happiness depends on our me- mental workings, the antidote to our misery also lies in our internal world. And that's why the teachings and techniques on mind training are so important in all traditions of Buddhism. In the text we are about to examine, there are only ver- eight verses, but I reckon you could base a lifetime's practice on them. Perhaps what makes them so extraordinary is how they point to a way of doing things so contrary to our usual inclinations. It's a bit like the story I read recently on Ian Lawton's blog, Soul Seeds. Although it might sound as though it might have been told by a Buddhist master, the story is actually of Jewish origin, which just goes to prove how much religions share each other's elements. In any case, it tells of an old man walking down the road when a horseman appears out of nowhere and charges straight towards him. The old man has to dive into a ditch to save himself. Once the rider has galloped past, the old man clambers out of the ditch and shaking his fist at the furious horseman riding off into the distance shouts, May you be blessed! May your deepest desires be fulfilled! A passerby who sees the whole episode is amazed and asks, Why would you wish such a good thing for someone who nearly killed you? The old man looks at him and replies, If his deepest desires were fulfilled... He would have no need to run an old man off the road. Now, of course, we would expect the old man to crawl out of the ditch and yell curses and swear words at the horseman. But if we go a bit more deeply, we will see that the old man is very wise. For one thing, as he says, if the horseman's deepest desires had been met, he'd have no cause to charge down old people in the street. But then also, by wishing good for the rider, the old man is protecting his own mind. Not afflicted by negative emotion like hatred, instead he practices a form of love. And as we know, love both safeguards one's mind and builds positive potential, while hatred afflicts the mind and is the cause for negative karma and suffering in the future. So in going against conventional wisdom, the old man is actually creating a lorry load of positive potential and future happiness. These eight verses of mind training are a bit like that. They both 
contradictory with what we might call common sense and also very practical. Instead of encouraging us to create more confusion and misery, they indicate ways to turn bad situations around so that they become profitable, even though what the verses teach seems a bit counterintuitive. Now, however, before we start with the text, let's set our motivation as we usually do, remembering, if we can, the mind of bodhicitta, that wish to attain enlightenment to benefit all beings. If we can set that as our motivation for the program, then at the end dedicate with the same intention, this program will become a powerful impetus for good in our lives. It will also have the potential to benefit many others. If our motivation is small, perhaps only concerned with some advantage in this life, we shouldn't be too optimistic about the desired outcome. It may or may not come about, and even if it does, it won't lead to any long-term success or happiness. The advantage will only last as long as the conditions are there, the longest being to the moment of our death. But after that, benefit is all over, and we have expended positive potential for a relatively useless purpose. If our motivation includes our own liberation, you can see how much greater it will be. But a bodhicitta motivation is the greatest of all, because its focus is the benefit of all beings. So there's the choice. Now let's take a moment to think about our motivation. Thank you. Now on to the eight verses of mind training or attitude training. The text belongs to a tradition in Tibetan Buddhism called Lojong, which is particularly focused on what is usually translated as mind training. However, in one of his teachings in this tradition, His Holiness the Dalai Lama translated as attitude training. And in his commentary on the eight verses, Dr. Alex Berzin also says that lo means the attitude that we view and deal with the world more than what we understand as general mind. He also says that the word jong has both the connotation of training and of cleansing. He writes, and so what that implies is that in order to train ourselves to make progress, what we need to do is basically cleanse ourselves of all the negative attitudes, of the disturbing emotions, of the various hindrances, and so on. And it's by cleansing these out, getting rid of them, that we actually train ourselves. And so this is the meaning of the word jong. He goes on to talk about the Tibetan word yonten, which means good qualities, but which literally means straightening out some deviation. So it's a correction of some way in which we're going off in the wrong direction, he says. And to correct that and come to the right direction, that's what the word good qualities means. So it's very much in keeping with the Buddhist idea that what we want to do is get rid of suffering and the causes of suffering. And to develop the good qualities, basically we need to get rid of the negative qualities. And actually, this type of explanation of training or cleansing and of good qualities as a correction of deviations then allows for the two basic approaches that we have particularly emphasized in Tibetan Buddhism. He shows how training, cleansing and good qualities are taught in two of the four Tibetan Buddhist schools, the Gelukpa and the Nyingma schools. He says, on the one hand you have, as typified for instance by the Guluk tradition, 
that in addition to cleansing, you have to actually build up positive qualities, good qualities from their potentials. And Buddha nature consists of the potentials of the good qualities. And on the other hand, you have the explanation that you find very much in Nyingma, for example, in which the good qualities are there, not just the potentials, but they're not functioning because of the overlay of these negative qualities, of these fleeting stains as they call them. And so basically what you need to do is get rid of the stains and then, as is explained in Dzogchen, all the qualities are actually there. So that's an explanation of what is meant by the lineage of mind or attitude training teachings. Now for a bit of background. This lineage of attitude training teachings arrived in Tibet originally with a great Indian master, Atisha. Very briefly, Atisha was a renowned master at Nalanda Monastery in India when he was invited to Tibet during a time of much difficulty when the Buddhist teachings had declined. Among the teachings that Atisha used to straighten things out were the attitude or mind trainings, which he taught to his main disciple Drontumba. Drontumba in turn gave the teachings to his student Potawa, and they then passed down to two of Potawa's disciples, Rangli Tampa and Chikawa. These two both wrote texts on the mind training. Rangli Tampa composed the eight verses we're talking about here, and Chikawa wrote the seven-point mind training, which really has a lot more than seven points to it, but is organized into seven divisions. Actually, Chikawa wrote the seven points because of the eight verses. The story goes that one day, Chikawa came across the eight verses in the room of one of his teachers, and two of the lines particularly caught his attention. The lines were, May I take upon myself the defeat and offer to others the victory. He was so intrigued that he asked his teacher who the author was. When his teacher told him it was Langri Tampa, Chikawa decided to go and find Langri Tampa and find out what he meant. He travelled to Lhasa, where he had heard Langri Tampa was staying, but when he arrived, he found Langri Tampa had already died. He then decided to look for any of Langri Tampa's students who might have taken teachings on the eight verses, and heard that a certain Geshe Sharawa had. So he went off to find him, which he did. But Geshe Sharawa was in the middle of a discourse that didn't seem to have anything to do with taking defeat upon oneself and offering victory to others. Not to be daunted, Chikawa waited until Geshe Sharawa was circumambulating a stupa, which is a common practice to develop positive potential among Tibetan Buddhists. According to Geshe Loden in his book Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, Chikawa made a seat out of his upper robe for Geshe Sharawa and asked him if he could ask a question. Writes Geshe Loden, Geshe Sharawa responded bluntly, I just gave an extensive teaching, didn't you follow it? Not one to be put off easily, Chikawa persisted, saying that his question was a special one, and so Geshe Sharawa relented and took the seat. How important is the practice of offering the victory to others and accepting defeat for oneself? asked Chikawa. Geshe Sharawa replied, If you aspire to attain enlightenment, it is vital. Chikawa then asked to be convinced that such a practice was indeed a Buddhist practice, and along with other reliable sources, Geshe Sharawa quoted him the following two lines from Nagarjuna's Precious Garland. May their negative fruits ripen upon me 
and my positive fruits upon them. Thoroughly convinced, Chikawa stayed with Geshe Sharawa for twelve years and was recognized to have gained the path of insight by his practice of abandoning self-cherishing. Actually, up to this point, the mind or attitude training teachings had been passed on as a part of what was known as the ear-whispered lineage. That means they were regarded as too difficult for most people and so were only given by oral transmission to those the teachers deemed were ready to practice them. So they were not common at all. However, in due course, Chekhoa became convinced that it would be much better if they became more widespread. So he wrote the text I mentioned before, The Seven Points of Mind Training. And that is the slightly by-the-way story of how the eight verses led to the seven points. Dr. Alex Burson makes the point that at the time that he started studying the mind training with Geshe Sharawa, Chekawa was already an advanced practitioner. So the fact that he stayed so long studying with Geshe Sharawa indicates actually how difficult it is to practice these teachings, which are mainly aimed at ridding ourselves of self-centeredness and self-cherishing. And now let's start looking at the actual text, which reads, Determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit for all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. When in the company of others, I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without delay. Whenever I see beings that are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear as if I'd found a precious treasure. When, out of envy, others mistreat me with abuse, insults or the like, I shall accept defeat and offer the victory to others. When somebody whom I've benefited and in whom I have great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. In short, both directly and indirectly, I offer every happiness and benefit to all my mothers. I shall secretly take upon myself all their harmful actions and suffering. Undefiled by the stains of the superstitions of the eight worldly concerns, may I, by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, be released from the bondage of attachment. So that is the text. In his commentary, His Holiness the Dalai Lama points out that the first seven verses of the text are unskillful means, that is, developing loving-kindness, compassion, bodhicitta and so on, while the last verse deals with wisdom. So now, starting with the first verse, determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit for all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. Well, there's a challenge here. As His Holiness points out, we have a choice of two attitudes to adopt. We can cherish ourselves above all others and not really caring about how we affect others, just go all out for our own satisfaction. Or we can do what we can to cherish others, trying not to focus too much on ourselves. These are both valid attitudes, but we have to look closely at which brings us the most benefit. Well, all beings want happiness and want to be free of suffering. From time to time, when conducting a class, I start by asking those who want suffering to put up their hands. No hands ever go up. 
But when I ask anybody who wants happiness to raise their hands, just about everybody's hand goes up. I say just about everybody because you always get one or two who refuse to budge one way or the other. I guess they may have some philosophical view about happiness and suffering, but even were they to actually choose in a real-life situation, I bet they'd opt for happiness. So the question becomes, what brings more happiness, cherishing oneself or cherishing others? Our conventional wisdom will, of course, tell us it's the first, that is, to cherish ourselves above everyone else. As the Boomtown Rats sang in their 1977 hit single Looking After Number One, The world owes me a living. I've waited on this doll queue too long. I've been standing in the rain for 15 minutes. That's a quarter of an hour too long. I'll take all they can give me and then I'm going to ask for more because the money's buried deep in the Bank of England and I want the key to the vault. Then the chorus goes, I'm going to take your money, count your loss when I'm gone. I'm all right, Jack. I'm looking after number one. If I want something, I get it, no matter what I have to do. I'll step on your face on your mother's grave. Never under, uh, underestimate me. I'm nobody's fool. And that is then repeated. Don't want to be like you. Don't want to live like you. Don't want to talk like you at all. Don't give me love thy neighbor. Don't give me charity. Don't give me peace and love or the good Lord above. You only get in my way with your stupid ideas. I'm an island untire of myself. And when I get old, older than today, I'll never need anybody's help in any way. Don't want to be like you. Don't want to live like you. Don't want to talk like you at all. I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like me. And that was Bob Geldof in his cynical youth. And perhaps it's a statement about the satisfaction that he found looking after number one, that years later he was the driving force behind Live Aid, the dual venue concert for poverty-stricken Ethiopia. Stuart Bailey, in in an article for the Belfast Telegraph, claims Geldof started out as a spectacular cynic. He writes, Geldof chanced his way into punk and his first release was looking after number one. He subverted a line from John Donne when he sang, I'm an island entire of myself. It was all about Bob until he learned of the Ethiopian famine in 1984. Then he charged up a sense of righteous anger and delivered Band-Aid. He had a willing accomplice in Bono, and since then they've been a double act, shouting and cajoling, suggesting that rock and roll is about more than self-interest. Which may suggest that only looking after number one, as I said, doesn't lead to the satisfaction and happiness that we want. In his first verse, Longley Tampa says that he's determined to work for the greatest benefit of sentient beings. Now the greatest benefit means, of course, full enlightenment. So he's promising not only to work for beings' well-being in a mundane sense, but that he will do whatever he can to lead them to enlightenment. He calls beings more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel. Now in the olden days, it seems, people believed that such a thing existed, a jewel that could grant whatever one wished. A very valuable jewel would seem to be able to do that. Imagine, for instance, that you had in your bank vault the pink star diamond the most valuable gem ever sold, which went for $83,187,381 in a sale in Sotheby's. Even if you had very little else, just that diamond assurity would ensure that you could get whatever you wanted. But Langri Tampa sees sentient beings as much more valuable than that. Why? 
just because they are living beings and the diamond is inanimate? No. Actually, it's because Langri Tampa realizes that sentient beings are his basis for attaining enlightenment. Another translation of this verse goes, May I always cherish all limited beings by considering how far superior they are to wish-granting gems for actualizing the supreme aim. It is only by practicing with other beings that we can hope to actualize the supreme aim, which means to achieve full enlightenment. As we said earlier, the mind-training teachings are to be used to cleanse our mind and develop positive qualities. It is impossible to do either of these if we don't have situations in which to practice. And situations of practice only come about in our interactions with other beings. For instance, we can return to the story of the old man and the horseman. This was a situation of practice, wasn't it? The old man had a choice. He could be angry, swear and curse at the rider, or he could do what he did, wish the rider his greatest satisfaction. Which would bring more happiness and a better outcome to the situation? Obviously, as we noted earlier, the wish for the horseman's satisfaction. If by the wish for the satisfaction of his deepest desires, the old man meant the horseman's enlightenment, he would have been practicing as Langri Tampa suggests in this verse. For not only could that lead to the rider's enlightenment, but also to the old man's. Now, in his commentary to the eight verses, Alex Burson encourages us to think quite deeply about what we value most. What do we think is the most precious thing, he asks? Do we think in terms of money? Do we think in terms of possessions? Do we think in terms of position? Or do we think in terms of people? And not just people, but all beings. I mean, including mosquitoes and all limited beings, all beings with limited minds. What importance do others have in our life? What role do they play? What's our attitude when we actually meet somebody or we meet somebody new? It's very useful to become aware of our instinctual reactions to those we meet. For isn't it so that some bring great pleasure while we really wish that others wouldn't bother us at all? We're captured by those old instinctual habits of slotting people into friend, enemy and stranger and then reacting with attachment, aversion and indifference. From this way of reacting, it is impossible to attain a liberation or enlightenment. Every single being provides us with an opportunity to edge just a little further on the path to enlightenment, depending on the value we place on them and their interaction with us. Actually, those who give us the hardest time can also help us to progress the most. But in any case, we don't only need other beings to attain enlightenment, we need them for our very existence here and now. If you think about it deeply enough, you can see that there's not a single thing that you enjoy that hasn't come from other beings in one form or another. For instance, normally as soon as we sit down to a nice meal, we dig in and are quickly filling our belly while our mind is lusting after the next mouthful, or wandering off to the past, the future, or some enticing fantasy. To our heedless mind, the food on our plate may have appeared as if by magic just to satisfy our hunger. But if we take time to look deeply at what is on our plate, we will see countless beings have been involved in bringing us the meal. All the people who planted the food, those who harvested it, those who processed it, and others who put it in the shop for us to buy. All these beings have been necessary for us to enjoy the meal. 
and not only people, but other beings also have contributed to the food. Many insects gave their lives or helped in the growth of the raw foods. The birds contributed in their way. In fact, we cannot point to any being and say, that one made not the slightest contribution to my meal. In an article entitled Eating for Peace on the website Art of Dharma, Thich Nhat Hanh points out how violent eating mindlessly can be. He says, the Buddha told the following story. There was a couple who wanted to cross the desert to go to another country in order to seek freedom. They brought with them their little boy and a quantity of food and water. But they did not calculate well, and that is why halfway through the desert they ran out of food and knew that they were going to die. So, after a lot of anguish, they decided to eat the little boy so that they could survive and go to the other country. And that's what they did. And every time they ate a piece of flesh from their son, they cried. The Buddha asked his monks, My dear friends, do you think that the couple enjoyed eating the flesh of their son? The Buddha said, It is impossible to enjoy eating the flesh of our son. If you do not eat mindfully, you are eating the flesh of your son and daughter. You are eating the flesh of your parent. Thich Nhat Hanh says, If we look deeply, we will see that eating can be extremely violent. UNESCO tells us that every day 40,000 children in the world die because of a lack of nutrition, of food. Every day 40,000 children. And the amount of grain that we grow in the West is mostly used to feed our cattle. 80% of the corn grown in this country, that's the United States, is to feed the cattle to make meat. 95% of the oats produced in this country is not for us to eat, but for the animals raised for food. According to this recent report that we received, of all the agricultural land in the U.S., 87% is used to raise animals for food. That is 45% of the total land mass in the U.S. The whole purpose of more than half of all the water consumed in the U.S. is to raise animals for food. It takes 2,500 gallons of water to produce a pound of meat, but only 25 gallons to produce a pound of wheat. A totally vegetarian diet requires 300 gallons of water per day, while a meat-eating diet requires more than 4,000 gallons of water a day. Raising animals for food causes more water pollution than in any other industry in the U.S., because animals raised for food produce 130 times the excrement of the entire human population. It means 87,000 pounds per second. Much of the waste from factory farms and slaughterhouses flows into streams and rivers, contaminating water sources. In the U.S., animals raised for food are fed more than 80% of the corn we grow and more than 95% of the oats. We are eating our country. We are eating our earth. We are eating our children. And I've learned that more than half the people in this country overeat. Mindful eating can help maintain compassion within our heart. A person without compassion cannot be happy, cannot relate to other human beings and to other living beings. And eating the flesh of our own son is what is going on in the world because we do not practice mindful eating. We still have much to say about the kindness of other beings, but now our time together is up. We must say goodbye. Thank you for being with the program today, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all beings everywhere. Thank you, and goodbye. 
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.